0: Another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 165 of Sports Cards Live. It is a special night, Tuesday, December the 20th, 2022. My name is Jeremy Lee. I would like to thank Raymond Lee of VeriSwap for joining us on Saturday for what was a great episode. You can check that out on the YouTube channel. Also ask you to join the close to a quarter million people who have already downloaded the Center Stage app across both iOS and Android for quick comms when you're at a card show or to help you price your cards for sale on any platform. Check out their collections and albums features too. The app is continuously improving. So join me in supporting the great team they have and the innovation they are undertaking. Also, what not? Check out the WhatNot app for group breaks. Buy it now. is hosted around the clock by some of the most entertaining breakers in the hobby. And thank you again, as always, to all of our loyal viewers and listeners. If you are not yet subscribed to the YouTube channel, please take a moment and do so. But let's get to tonight's show. Tonight's guest started in the hobby collecting Australian football and cricket cards in the late 1980s and early 90s when he then got into basketball cards as it became popular in Australia. In 2017, he launched 130-point, and he still does run that business today. His favorite team is the Phoenix Suns, and his favorite athletes are Kevin Johnson, Charles Barkley, and Devin Booker. He is originally from Launceston, Tasmania. I think I said that right. Currently hailing from Melbourne, Australia. Let's bring him out, Lane Pierce. Welcome to Sports Cards Live, and how are you this afternoon on on Wednesday, where you are. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Jeremy. And yeah, doing very
1: well, thank you. It's a lovely day down here in Melbourne. Nice hot day, summer day, and I'm assuming it's not quite the same where you are right now, but no, it's fantastic to be on.
0: <laughs> not even close. It is like minus 30 degrees here before the wind wow. chill. It is it is very cold, but we don't complain about the weather here in my house, at least. We just take it as it comes. We can't control it, so we just, we just deal with it. But you're an Australian. I've had people on from Australia before, Lane. I, I spent time in Australia in right out of high school, 1990, 1991. And so in honor of you, this didn't work out, but I thought I have a, you know, I was a big Midnight Oil fan in the 80s when their Diesel and Dust album released in North America. Uh, and when I went to Australia, I ended up catching a couple of their shows in sydney and i bought a i bought a a concert shirt and i actually it's been stored for many years now and i went to find i thought maybe i'll wear my midnight oil concert shirt tonight and uh it was all creased it did smelled like it'd been stored for several years so i didn't i didn't put it on but um i want to ask you just kind of it's a random question it's not sports card related but i'm curious like Music in Australia, Midnight Oil. Again, like I loved them back. The Diesel and Dust album was one of my favorite. I think that was that lane. That was the first CD I ever bought was my Midnight Oil Diesel and Dust. Are they are they big in Australia still? Like whatever happened to them?
1: Yeah, they, they definitely are. The lead singer actually became one of our politicians for a while too. Um, but I think they're back now, touring every now and again, doing some doing some you know concerts and things here and there. Um, you know, and there's other great bands from Australia, ACDC and Excess. Um, they're all big bands that we've had come out of australia and the music scene here is really really strong so um yeah it's been great a lot of people being able to get back out and go to concerts and things since we've re- you know, reduced lockdowns and things here over the past year or so and it's been uh, good to see some of those concerts coming back along and getting that yeah, industry no. back alive.
0: yeah for sure ac dc legend i mean they're legends in, in you know hard rock yep. and in excess i mean the devil inside like who can who can forget that among their other their other hits so uh, that's really cool, man. I love I love reminiscing on the old days. One other thing, I'm going to reminisce. When I was in Australia, I was homesick. I was young. I was right out of high school, 18 years old, and I remember I stumbled into this like book slash board game store, probably somewhere downtown Sydney, and I saw I saw Skybox basketball cards sitting on the on the on the counter, and I bought yeah. as many as I could afford back in the day the very first skybox with those with those crazy graphics uh you know michael jordan cards and all that um what what was the car- like i don't know if you were around in 1990 but back then there were cards in australia yeah. do you, can you can you talk a bit about what was the sports card scene like that like 30 years ago in australia
1: yeah sure like i was born in 84 so sorry my age a little bit here but um it was a pretty good market in terms of uh we had a lot of australian rules football cards um cricket cards they were the sort of things that really started here and that i remember being around in you know we found them in supermarkets and corner stores and all sorts of things when we were in the late 80s but come early 90s the explosion of you know basketball cards is what we all know as junk wax era they were The cards were everywhere and as you said before i lived in launceston in tasmania so it's a fairly small town northern part of tasmania so a little island at the bottom of australia and we had people selling skybox like you said at the garden store so the garden centre down the road from me had a box of Skybox sitting on the on the desk. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was just amazing that you could pick these things up pretty much anywhere. There was the upper deck, Skybox, Fleer, everything was around um, so readily available. And, and I talk to people here at times when they say that, you know, we're in a current, we're currently in another junk wax era. Well, I, I can't go to the garden centre down the road in Tasmania and buy carts anymore. So I don't think we're quite to the same extent where they were back in the early 90s, but yeah, it was um very very prominent. Lots of card stores, and even in little towns like Launceston. So, I think it was yeah a good strong time. But okay,
0: good. There was time. there was something happening. So you mentioned people say we're in a junk wax era. We've heard it, but we've heard people refer to it as the junk slab era. And then I've <laughs> heard the most recent one I've heard of is the junk parallel era. What do you think? What do you think of those terms now? The junk. Does junk parallel make sense to you? Does junk slab make sense to you?
1: Oh look, the terms make sense to me, and and whether I.
0: Necessarily agree is neither here nor there. I guess it's
1: uh, for me. I, I kind of think people can do what they want to do if they want to have a baseball world prism, which has turned out to actually be not a bad idea in the end because he's playing well this year. Um, there might be a bit of demand for it. Um, th- there is, you know, all those that supply and demand element to these these com- these things where you need to look at what are people willing to buy versus you know what you have available to sell and for a while there there was the demand, but we've seen that drop off a bit now. So there are, I think, a lot of people that are holding what you would probably classify as a junk slab. Um, whether they're happy with that or not is another thing. <laughs> they probably aren't. A lot of them probably wanted to move it. Um, so yeah, it's a it's something that I guess you could consider is somewhat prominent in that we have a lot of slabs, but at the same time, it does provide that, you know, protection for the card long term. We're not going to see as many of those cards that might hold some value in the long term sitting in people's you know, shoeboxes like we did as kids my, when I was a kid that are now all bent up and broken. So, yeah, there's some good and bad to both of it, I think, in that we have over oversupply in some areas for certain players and certain cards. But also at the same time, it means that long term it keeps the, the hobby healthy because there's always going to be these cards that have had that protection early on that we wouldn't have had 20 or 30 years ago. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out long term. Hard to tell crystal balls and all that but yeah I think it might provide some longer term benefit to the hobby having so many cards available
0: for people like you said time will tell it's tough to it's tough to know moving forward so we actually met in person uh this past July at the at the national in Atlantic City and I was I've always known about well not always I've known about one thirty point for several years now but I never know who was behind it or, or what and then I meet you and i hear you're in you're in atlantic city from australia from melbourne and um let me ask, like what you know first of all it was nice to meet you there and i'm glad that we got to me i think we met at the pwcc booth i forget who but someone there uh what w- was it uh who introduced us uh there? justin justin, justin wickizer that's right yeah yeah. Yes. Yep. yeah three yeah he's tall you're tall i'm tall so <laughs> the three the three tall guys were, were hanging out chit-chatting and uh, but i was curious and i never asked you this but what brought, I mean, this might sound like a silly question, but I'd like to ask it. What brought you to the National uh, from Australia to to Atlantic City? What What was the main purpose or what were the main purposes of your trip?
1: Yeah, sure. It was um, something I always wanted to do first and foremost as a collector. It I was a place, you know, a, an event that for most people around the world that they collect and they, they sort of get involved in it. They realize that that is sort of the pinnacle in terms of card shows globally. So um, from a personal, purely personal standpoint, I was interested in going just from a collector's point of view but um, more from the business side of things with 130 point um, you know in the last 12 months we've sort of integrated other marketplaces into the 130 point platform through the 130 point.com/ cards um, component of the website. And in that era we've got PWCC we've got MySlabs, Labs, we've got pristine auctions, we've got golden auctions included in there on top of the eBay data so we're, we're starting to amalgamate more and more data as best we can as we get access to different streams. So um, that was a perfect opportunity for me to then go over and strengthen some of these relationships with the companies that had um, been willing to share the data um, with us and allow us to put it on the website. So I thought it was a prime opportunity. Um, you know, we were finally allowed to travel overseas again after a couple of years of not really being able to get out of the country. Um, and yeah, I made a decision probably, really, it was actually late. It was probably only two weeks before the National actually finally made my decision and, and got got the tickets sorted and got over there. So but um, it was definitely a really good experience and, and it was great to meet people like yourself and many other people in the hobby who I've either spoken to throughout the years or have been dealing with when it came to sort of setting up these arrangements for the website. So um, yeah, that was probably my main reasoning was both personal and business.
0: And it was successful then? You said sounds like it was. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And even sometimes it's about that um,
1: meeting the people. So getting involved and actually talking to people face to face that you've spoken with over email or maybe a Zoom call here and there. Uh, multiple times that was just really great for me I'm a sort of person that I prefer you know getting face-to-face interactions at times when I can and rather than sitting behind a computer uh, I do enough of that when I'm coding the website and doing changes and things so
0: it was really good to get over there and actually meet and see these people face to face so you just mentioned coding the website um, from from our discussions I don't think you're a coder I think so talk a bit about how does what is your coding experience, and how do you go about coding? Uh, coding one thirty point. Isn't yeah,
1: sure. So my um, like my professional background before sort of doing what I am doing now full time was um, aerospace engineer. So as part of my degree, we actually learn coding, the basics of coding for different elements of what we do in our degree, whether it be for structural mechanics and all these other sorts of things, and then just general coding, um, learning languages. So I have a very baseline understanding of coding from that. Um, but then when I started really back in collecting properly in sort of 2015-16 and starting to get back into the all these you know different elements of what goes into collecting, whether it be comps, whether it be checklists and redemptions and everything. Um, I have sort of had always wanted to build a website, but just didn't have that passion project to go with it. So yeah, that was where 130 Point came about. And at the time, no, I didn't have any formal training in, in web development, server management, anything like that. Um, I've honestly just, you know, got down and Googled what I needed to Google or found a page that gives me a good tutorial on something. So it's really been just a learnt process through the internet, looking at tutorials, looking at, you know, troubleshooting. I spent a lot of time on some of the major troubleshooting websites that are out there, looking at other people's solutions to problems and yeah, just building up my knowledge incrementally step by step over five, six, seven years, and you know, to the point where I now sort of, you know, I'm managing the server that runs the website. I've got cloud-based services that run different processes um, you know we have a whole v- array of things that actually are working in the background to make the website what it is um, that I've just sort of built upon by increasing my knowledge as I've been going along.
0: So okay so let, let's jump in then to, uh, to 130 point what made you first start what made you first decide to uh, to go down the path of creating it what was the the aha moment behind all that?
1: Yeah, so for me, like I said, it was a bit of a passion project, but at the same time, I, um, being an engineer, and I, I love structured data and I love you know data to be in the right place and in the right format and things like that. And I was using some of the other websites that were available at the time for pricing um, data for cards yeah, as I was trying to build my collection up and buy new cards and sell. Um, and I didn't quite have what I was really looking for in terms of the way they presented the data and just other aspects to it. And i would also looked at building a website for the panini checklists um so i was looking then create some set data information which we also offer on the website where you can look at how many hits your team have um you know what's in the checklist for a certain player and we can see that all on one page whereas before that i was kind of looking at other people's stuff and i was like i don't quite like the way they do it i might try and do it myself Um, and also redemptions one of the original ideas for the website was um when I first got a redemption, I wanted to know if the, the, the athlete had already signed that redemption. So as if I redeemed it, the chance of me getting it, was, was it high or was it just going to be waiting like a lot of people are these days still? And um, I knew that Panini had produced all the redemption sort of checklists of what's been signed once a week. They used to release them on their blog. So I started the website originally by taking all those redemption spreadsheets that they would release and populating a database, a searchable database on the website where you could search to see if your redemption had been redeemed based on the player and, you know, what was written on the cart on the actual redemption. So that was one of the original functions of the website was that um, redemption sort of search function. Um, But that sort of morphed from that into checklists and had some advice from some um, local collectors here who are pretty well known who said, you know, you might want to add some more things to it and, then eventually that's where the eBay search side of things came into it.
0: And why did you call it 130 point? (laughs) Yeah, it's
1: a good question. And I always look back on it and go, um, you know, you sort of have these thoughts like, could I call it something else? Why did I call it that? But um, realistically at the time, I was trying to make it a bit of a um, sports slash card related um, name that was agnostic of, A sport or an actual like you know it's not basketball related necessarily it's not um related directly to soccer or nfl or anything i wanted something that sort of was common throughout the collecting community and that's where i just sort of came up with what's the most commonly referred to thickness of card that we quite often hear about for higher end cards and it was 130 point that 130 point thickness and you hear people in breaks going oh i need to grab some 130 point um, top loaders and that was kind of really where it evolved from i just thought oh yeah that sounds all right and you know having not no no, no clue how big or small this venture would ever become um that was the one i chose at the start and i've stuck with it ever since
0: <laughs> hey that's a great answer i mean i figured it had to do with the thickness of cards uh yeah. i didn't realize it would have to do with the top loaders though but uh that's uh hey that's that's a great answer you know um, okay, let's say hello. We got Daniel in in the in the chat with us. Good evening, Daniel. Spurs cards. What's going on? Contender says he's been looking forward to this all day. Daniel uses one thirty point a lot. Yeah, as as do I. Hello to collectors' dream, Stephen Pocklington. What's going on? Maud Cult is here. Jake's toe says love one thirty point. Thank you very much. I wanted to also ask you, Lane. Um, You are from Australia. So here you are, you're in Melbourne, Australia. You're going to create this website that's going to, you know, it's going to serve or or offer these services that you mentioned before you actually became a completed search, a completed sales lookup engine. Once you did that, like, how did you, how did you basically get onto the North American hobby radar? Because 130 point is well known. You, You hear about it all the time. Seems like everybody uses it. How did you get there from Australia? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. It's um,
1: like most brands and things you build, it does take time. Um, we started obviously with a, a local user base here in Australia um, that I built predominantly around some of our Facebook and other well, predominantly Facebook. We had an online forum here as well, a bit like a version of the blowout cards forums here in Australia called OzCard Trader, which is still actually up and running to this day. Um, it's still an active forum. And I used to just talk to the admins of these groups and say, "Hey, look, I've created this new tool, this new website. Um, do you mind if I, you know, pop it up in the in the on the forum or the Facebook group?" And people, you know, start using it, and give me feedback. I kept developing the website based on their feedback. So, yeah, as you can imagine, the first year or year or so, it was predominantly a slow growth um, of Australian users. Um, but I, over time, as I'd been collecting more and more, I got more involved in a lot of the Facebook groups online. Um, this is probably prior to Instagram being really much of a Platform for trading cards, Um, and we actually—I became an admin of a few um, international groups, um, some of the quite large ones, with you know thousands, ten thousand or so users. um, At which point, you know, the admins were were happy for me to you know promote the website for use for um, sales comparisons, particularly in a lot of the groups where they were saying that if you were going to list a card for sale, you had to include a price comparison. Um, The reason for that, in a lot of groups, was to try and make sure that new collectors. Um, weren't getting ripped off when someone would put up a you know, a card that recently sold for maybe an average of $10 and they were going to try and sell it to someone for 100 $150 and then somebody gets caught out. So that was a lot of the original sort of side of where comps were playing out I saw in, in these Facebook groups. And I think from there it just kind of um, word of mouth and, and over time with other platforms that provided sales data dropping off, um, the biggest one that sort of dropped a lot of people off was ebay cut access to data um, i think it was back in 2020 or 2019 i can't remember the exact date. to a lot of other platforms when they were seeing that um, competitors were using that data to build their own marketplaces um, because of the way we operated we were purely an information source we weren't trying to compete with ebay we were providing ebay data and links to ebay back for items that were for sale so we were also sending traffic back to them um, we were able to retain our access so i think At that point, that was kind of a tipping point for us where we still had access to the data. We could still show things like best offer accepted prices that eBay had at that time stopped showing on their site, even though the data was available through their data streams. Um, And I think it just kind of snowballed from there, whereas we we, we were maintaining the website, we were keeping these pricing um, data available, and more and more people word of mouth in the US sort of picked up on it and then throughout the world. So it's now um, used globally. Um, We see a lot of use out of Europe as well, um, Southeast Asia, um you know the us is obviously the biggest user base now um canada's number two so you'd be happy with that i imagine um and then it falls to sort of australia and new zealand as a combined group and then we have some of the european and southeast asian countries so yeah it's um it's a very humbling to see how far and how wide the websites used these days and um i'm just really appreciative of everybody's support and, and the fact that they do like to use the website and you know i do try my best to maintain it and Provide updates and new functionality where I can, but it's a, a small team at the moment of just myself and um, hopefully somebody else soon. But yeah, um, we're we're trying
0: to work and build up a bit more of a team now, though, to start adding more and more functionality. It's hard to believe that a not hard to believe, it it's just surprising that a brand like One Hundred and Thirty Point, that most of the hobby is familiar with, I think, is really one person. You know, you don't really expect that. So, kudos to you. You, you definitely done a good job with it. Do you consider 130 point to have any competition? And if so, who would you consider to be competition or what what sites or services? Yeah, certainly. There's um, always competition in these. And I, I
1: think that's a good thing. I I welcome competition in any market of any sort because if there's no competition, it, it stops you from trying to improve and be better. Um, so I guess probably in, in a lot of ways, the main competition to us would be things like card ladder, um, Market Movers, Um, then you also have other platforms like um, Center Stage and that that are coming about with their different approaches to this. Uh, I know Alt has some built-in functionality too for pricing as well. So there are a few different platforms out there that offer services. They might not be exactly the same as the way ours is, but we're all offering different types of services. Um, And in a lot of ways, the biggest thing we think that 130 Point offers that a lot of other platforms don't necessarily do is we can provide access to data for every card. So we're not just focusing on a subset of cards, say, you know, maybe 1,000, 10,000, whatever the number might be of cards that are um, placed into that system that you might be using for pricing. We offer access to all the sales. So everything from the 99-cent sales to the, you know, million-dollar sales that happen on Golden and other platforms. Um, so, yeah, that's our intent, is to give people that full, wide, free access to data um, which does make us a little bit different to other people. But it also allows us to provide people with the data we think they want, because we know that a lot of sales happen in the lower end spectrum of, of trading cards um, and not all of them are at the high end. So there's a lot of people who want to know, you know the $10, $20 sales because they're, that's important to them, important to their business in some cases too.
0: So on that topic of, you know, kind of what other services are out there and, and how, how yours is different, what are you, what are you doing to differentiate or to stay ahead? Let's say because I think you had a head start on most of the the services you just named. What are you doing to stay ahead or to continue to differentiate and, and keep One Thirty Point uh, as relevant as it is?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's a it is a, a difficult thing to do. Is to maintain. Sometimes just maintaining the just the baseline website can be quite problematic when things change and, and things get updated and and you know more users come on and and so forth it's always hard to predict some of those things but we try as best to make sure that we're providing you know as much data as we can as quickly as possible and that's one of the things that does happen with the website during peak loads there are sometimes some delays with data being provided um and we've been working over like the last 18 months i think it is to try and unload our baseline server and move things into remote services that then make the results return a bit quicker but ultimately you know there's only so much we can do so we're working now to build out new features and new systems that are going to i guess enhance the existing search function um things like we're looking at working with at the moment is being able to allow other websites to directly link from say a uh, an item listing on their website to our website we've got a trial of that coming up with a, with a partner of ours soon um, and we're looking to add things like user dashboards where people can save their searches. They can save down cards. They can save you know, alerts for new card items, now, for new cards that are listed on marketplaces. Um, and that's all really built around our ability to amalgamate data from multiple marketplaces. So we're working like some of the other platforms have been able to do. And we're pulling in as much data as we can from as many marketplaces as that are available. And then we're going to populate that. So we're already doing that with the sold items on our um Cards. So the the full marketplace search function, Um, we've done that over the past eighteen months. We're adding more in as we go, and we're also looking at then making that available for items for sale. Because me as a collector, I know that let's say for example, I want to find a Devon Booker card that I want to buy. I want to know if that card is listed for sale on any of the marketplaces. I, I personally don't have time to search every day, Golden, Pristine, PWCC, eBay my slabs, jump on all of those one at a time and search to see if there's a new listing for my the card I want. Um, I personally as a collector want to be able to go to one place and see if, those item, if there's any new listings. And, and one of our aims is to try and bring that functionality over the next six to 12 months, hopefully, or even less if we can get it up and running faster, to be able to allow people to do that and also have their own user dashboard where they can save searches, they can save items, they can do all sorts of different functionality. So yeah, that's sort of where we're trying to progress to. Um, but like I said before, at the moment, it's me. I've got other people coming on board now to help me make this sort of vision into a reality, hopefully. And um, yeah, we'll see how we go.
0: So you say, you know, it's just you. You're looking to bring on some other people. It makes me wonder about revenue model, business model, uh, financing. Are, are you self-funded yep. so far? Uh, speak a bit to how, you're, how you are funding the company.
1: Yeah, sure. So like everybody would know, these things aren't free. Um, our server costs and all the, Components we have that make the website run are somewhat expensive because when you start using hosted services, they they do go up quite a bit. So um, we our general revenue model comes through the advertising people see on the website. So we have um, like Google like banner ads on each page for the search when you do a search. Um, those are our primary revenue like that's where we get most of our revenue from. On a, a steady revenue that pays pretty much pays the server costs and the the, um, cloud service costs that we have each month. So that's good. That allows us to, you know, keep the website running as it is. Um, And we offer, we're starting now to offer direct advertising agreements with um, people. So um, we'll have some more information about, um, you know, reaching out to us about how to do that soon but at the moment we've um, been lucky enough to have um, PSA come on board for a few months and with a direct advertising agreement with us um, and that's been fantastic for both them and for us so we're we're looking to use the revenue we get from things like that to actually then increase our ability to provide functionality to the website and um, there's one other revenue stream too which is affiliate marketing so when we have people that um, use our website to search for items for sale on eBay um, there is, a, if they then follow through from our website and go and purchase the item on eBay, then we get a small percentage of affiliate um, marketing payout from eBay from their fees. So, you know, it's a small percentage of the eBay fees. So overall, it's not a, not a huge revenue um, function for us, but it's something that does help add a little bit more into that, um, I guess, you know, money that we can use to try and add things to the website. And, and it's allowed me to essentially move away from my previous job and start working in this role full time and actually then put more effort and time into 130 point.
0: So are there any plans for you to really try to, you know, you mentioned, hopefully get more people on board. Yep. Does that mean that you need to go raise money, sell a piece of the company? What, what are your, what are your, what's your growth strategy uh, that way?
1: yeah sure so for the time being where we believe we've got enough revenue to actually make it work without having to take in external investors um but it is something that we uh, you know have been thinking about over time whether it is a possibility um as a you know it's a bit complex when it comes to most of the potential investors would probably be in america and we're an australian based company um and how you actually then you know provide That capital injection from an international company and tax implications and all these other things that, you know, I would need to probably pay accountants thousands of dollars to work out for me. So I'd probably lose the money I might gain from doing that. But um, yeah, we're pretty good at the moment. We think being able to start off and actually potentially add these components to the website without having to seek internal external um, funding. But um, we'll see how we go. It's uh, yeah, we've already got a, a plan. Fleshed out to how, how to achieve it, um, and a bit of structure of work and milestones and things. So yeah, fingers crossed in the next few months we can really crack
0: into it. Awesome. So right now the service is free. You just go to one thirty pointcom and uh, you can you can use the service. Are you hoping to keep it free for users, infant like you know into the future? Yeah. So
1: the uh, the intent is always to make the baseline search functionality free. Um, well, we we have partnerships with multiple providers, um, and we aren't allowed to sell their data. It's as simple as that. We're not allowed to sub license we're not allowed to sell it off to anyone, it is provided to us by them. And we're not allowed to then make money from selling their data to someone. So for the time being, we, we have no intent of, you know, making people pay to be able to just go in and type into a search function. The only things we would probably look to make Potentially a membership or a subscription type service would be if we offer different functions, so functions that require us to pay money to host data on a service somewhere else that you know is going to be of benefit to the user, but it's an in addition to that baseline uh, search functionality. So for the time being, though, no, we haven't got any you know subscription service or anything like that planned. It's it's all a maybe for the future, or if we can make it work for free, our intent is always to make it free. Um, if the the math's add up and, and we can provide a service and we don't have to charge people for it, then we'll, we'll do that. But ultimately if we're providing more services, there's more cost involved. So there may have to be some sort of payment associated with certain services.
0: Fair enough. Any other sort of development or features that you'd like to integrate into that you haven't mentioned yet that you want to give us a sneak preview for? And if you don't, I understand there could be some competitors watching or listening. So, uh, but uh, any, I'll, I'll just open that up to you to the extent you're willing to share.
1: Yeah, sure. There's plenty of features I would love to absolutely add in there. Um, Lots of things along the lines of being able to, because we have a lot of the penny checklists on the website already, having ways to integrate the checklists and the sold prices together more accurately and cleaner. So people can probably go to a checklist, find a card and then see all the sold prices that way rather than typing it in and kind of, going backwards. So that's one opportunity. Um, There's other things around using camera recognition. Um, So using image recognition, sorry, through cameras. Um, Our intent is to release a mobile app um, in the next 12 months, hopefully less. Part of that is is around this other development work we're doing in the background. So if we can make that happen, then we have the ability to tap into your phone camera to then use that for potential recognition work, um, like a lot of the other apps have started doing as well. So yeah, we, we have the, I guess, the benefit of we have huge amounts of data already available to us in terms of sold items we've got millions and millions and millions of sold items data available and we can use that to potentially train um, you know machine learning artificial intelligence type networks to actually understand that this card is a you know jason tatum prism psa 10 silver and actually be able to use all the data we have to do that it's not a simple process for anybody who knows how these things go there's a lot of human involvement to train it initially but it is something that we would love to integrate um, in the future that would make people's lives easier where they could take a photo of a card like center stage and and get that information so yeah there's uh, plenty of opportunities out there though whether it be that or or multiple other functions that we can add it just comes down to what users would prefer
0: to have over something else cool so can you sort of articulate what's the what's the vision? What what's your grand vision for One Thirty Point moving forward? Is it is it to become a hobby hub sort of thing? Or I'll again I'll leave that to you. But uh, vision wise, where, where do you see One Thirty Point? You know, five, 10 years down the road, what do you see it being becoming? Yeah, you've you've
1: pretty much um, you know pointed to my my vision is to to make it a centralized place for data amalgamation for the hobby. So providing people with a, a one-stop shop that's free and there's plenty of opportunity for them to to use other services but we want to provide something that provides them that simple um, search functionality the ability to follow listings find new listings for sales all those different elements of the collecting like what makes up their collecting journey try and keep it in one place to allow them to actually you know save time energy but still also support all those partners that work with us so know if you're going to make a purchase on a card you can still go out to their website and purchase it it's just that you can see the information in one place so we want to kind of act as that conduit for collectors to be able to come through see what they want to see and go to the relevant components of the the hobby that they actually want to be involved in whether it be buying the cards selling the cards and, and even other things that we might be able to integrate later on that are not necessarily just
0: card buying and selling related Cool. I like that. So I wanted to ask you this too. Like you have all this data you just mentioned millions and millions and millions of, of, of data points. Do you do you give it to anybody else or any other are any other services or websites out there that we may be familiar with using the data? Like do they is anyone coming to you for data versus going to your sources?
1: Yeah. So we don't have um, like I said, we don't have direct partnerships with any specific website that we offer access to our data directly from. Um, But we do know that there's other platforms out there that are using the data because there's really only two places that you can get best offer accepted prices that I'm aware of at the moment, that is either our website or through Terapeak on eBay's search function themselves. Now, some people have said that we don't need 130 point because we've got Terapeak, but if you've ever used Terapeak, it's not the easiest system to look for single cards and single items. It's more designed around, say, you're selling a, a toaster with a serial number and a barcode, and you can go in there and you can look at what those toasters are selling for in general across eBay. It's more built around that product, you know, buying and selling feature rather than individual, discrete, you know, somewhat unique, quite often cards. So, um, so yeah, so most of those other platforms that do have access to or do show best offer prices are utilizing our data um, or Terapeak to find that. Um, it's hard to tell exactly who is doing what, but ultimately um, they are pulling the data from somewhere. So it's either gotta be
0: one of the two sources. All right, cool, man, appreciate that. So my next question is going to be around some of the data you do have. Uh, Daniel A asked this question a little while ago, why doesn't eBay show the accepted best offer price? It's so frustrating. It is, but one thirty point provides it to you so you can alleviate that frustration. But why do you think they don't show it yet? You can get it.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one. They do. Um, I've I've spoken with the eBay reps about this and they, they basically originally said to me it was associated with them. Some elements of them them believing it was a, a more of a private sale agreement when you do a best offer. Um, but they do understand, too, the need for transparency sometimes with these things like... So certain elements of their listings, like cards, that number is important, whereas with some other products it might not be as important because you can do market research a lot easier. So with cards it is something that's very, very important because it does stop some of the, you know, uncertainty around certain sales and prices of cards that might be listed really high but aren't really, you know, sell for one-tenth of the list price. So it's... um yeah there's a a little bit of frustration there I do appreciate it. they used to show it. It was probably about four years ago I think they they used to show all of these prices on the website so it's only been since then that they stopped doing it for internal reasons there's it's hard to know exactly what is being thought inside eBay at any given time but it was um, a decision they made to not show it on their site but we do still have access to it through their
0: their data. And what about the fact that I believe your data on 130 point, along with eBay's completed listings or sold sold search sold item searches, only go back 90 days. What's yep. the uh, what, what's the deal with that? Why, why why does eBay restrict it, and and why do you also restrict it to 90 days? Yeah, so um, similar thing. I chatted to eBay about this as well about looking
1: at particularly for trading cards. So once again, if you're buying a, a toaster, a TV, an iPod, an iPad, you know anything like that. There's a a, a price that's pretty current, you know, there might be a sale on so you might get it slightly cheaper. But eBay's belief is that 90 days is enough information to provide clarity on most of the products that they list on eBay. But they appreciate that for trading cards, it's not the same, because a trading card might have a particular card that sells once every 18 months, two years, decade. Whatever it might be, so they do appreciate that. For trading cards, it's a different scenario, and I have been having discussions with them about the possibility of um, allowing, you know, visibility of longer-term data um, and showing that. But at the moment, the, the agreement I have with them still is ninety days, um, so we can only show ninety days of data, and that's that's it. If we show more than that, we would be breaching our agreement with them, um, and you know, I want to respect their the agreement because they've you know, maintain their access for us for a long time now. So we always want to make sure that we do the right thing by them. Um, but, yeah, that the eBay side of things gives you 90 days, but all our other partners have given us access to their historical data. So we have um, PWCC data from back to 2010, I think it might be. Um, Golden Auctions has given us, I think, about two years' worth of data or somewhere along those lines. MySlabs um, are the same. We've got all their historical data since they started up operations. Um, and Pristine Auctions gave us a, a good... Um, historical data set when we started with them as well. So a lot of our other partners have been fantastic in that regards and given us as much data as possible because they are a card, trading card business and they do understand that need for historical pricing data to really help people understand whether it be trends, whether it be purely those unique items that sell once every you know year, two years, five years, whatever it might be, that having that sort of comparison is, is also vital for a lot of collectors.
0: Okay. So, I mean... I can think of I can think of another service that goes back further than 90 days on eBay data. And if they're only getting it from either you or Terapeak, it, it, are services like that breaching some sort of agreement or are they just sort of taking a deep breath and hoping for the best or might they have a different deal with it with eBay? Yeah. So my understanding, I don't know if this is correct or not,
1: is that a lot of those um, don't necessarily have the, the access. Um, there's a couple that might... Have the access because of their um, partnerships with other businesses um so yeah they they will potentially be getting the data from us and just storing it in, the, in a database so as then once 90 days expires they've still got the, the information and whether that be from ebay itself it's just a matter of storing it on an, in your own storage system and database therefore once 90 days expired you've still got it that, that's how a lot of us a lot of the systems work
0: yeah okay cool all right, here's a question or a comment from John Wee. He says, I wish eBay would be more helpful and provide more transparency around unpaid sales and shill bidding. The entire hobby would really benefit from cooperation. I use 130 point on my computer a ton, by the way. I don't know if you know John. He's the founder or co-founder of um, of Center Stage. Uh, and then Collector's Dream says, great idea. One place search engine, which I think is a great idea too, Lane. I'd, I'd love to see that. Skeppy here says shill bidding is certainly real and still around today, but the market is manipulated through sales that appear real because the transaction does take place intentionally to set a price. What yep. are your comments? I mean, yeah, you know that, that it's uh, it's funny. You, you think, you think that, that, that a deal on any completed listing you would expect to be reliable. What are your thoughts, thoughts on people manipulating listing sales on ebay or other platforms in order to pump up prices or drive down prices for other reasons if that's even possible what are your thoughts on that plane
1: yeah it's a, it's a it is a real problem and i agree um it's certainly an issue that it's um difficult to i guess even for ebay to probably shield sure bidding is is it something that they you know don't like, and they can do their best to try and stop it. But there there's certain things they would need to put in place to really make that happen, including, you know, not being able to do certain bids for new users at a, until they've passed a certain time frame, number of purchases, all these sorts of things. Um, I've personally had several items in the past year she'll bid, and very disappointingly lost out on a sale because the you know person that was just below the final bid was, you know, high feedback. Um, eBay um, member. So it's extremely frustrating when that happens and we know it's rampant in certain areas and certain cards and all sorts of things that happen. Um, and the manipulation side of things as well, it's, um, it's one of the things that, yeah, is problematic, but I, the biggest area I find it's problematic for is for cards that have little to no other sales, recent sales. So if you manipulate the price on a very low, whether it be a low pop or a low serial number card, then yeah, that can cause a real problem, and this is where people need to do more research than just look at one sale. Um, this is my personal opinion on, on the way comps should work: is that it's not just the last sale said this, therefore that's the price. And I guess this kind of you know, comes in line with the, the, the topic of this, you know, this video is that where people need to look at the pricing and the comps and say, okay, that's you know, on average maybe there's five cards that sold for an average of $100 or $1,000, that's a better way of approaching it than looking at a single sale that could have been manipulated. Or if there's one sale that's a major outlier, then you need to consider, is that actually a legitimate sale? And you know, it's quite easy to tell in a lot of cases because let's say, for example, it's a, a player who's in the middle of an NBA season and they've just had you know, a week's worth of fantastic games and they're player of the week or something like that. Then yeah, their price may spike because people have said, oh, hang on, he's doing really well. I'm going to buy his card. I'm going to pay it bit extra. But then on the other hand, you're, you have people that might do that, but there's no real reason for that spike. So you kind of need to use a bit of judgment, a bit of thought into what you're looking at when you look at data, particularly when it comes from, you know, a sort an independent source that you're not aware of the um, how certain those sales are because they can make the sale look real. They can sell the item, they can pay for it. And then even after that, I've had one that even after the person paid for it, they canceled it. And unfortunately, eBay's system isn't, like isn't built well enough to actually be able to then handle that data and remove it from the data feed because it still shows up as a a finalised sale even though it gets refunded after the fact. Um, So it's extremely frustrating that there's all these different ways people can, I guess, manipulate the price comparison but at the same time collectors really need to look at Multiple sales. If there's none of that card, look at another card from another set that's similar to that. So you know, if you're looking at a select to five, look at the prism, and just try and find comparisons of players and cards that might give you an idea of is that real? Is it wrong? Sometimes it can take a bit of time, and you know, I know for a lot of people that it might not be. That's something they want to do. They just kind of want to know the price right now because they want to make a deal if they can. Um, you've just got to be aware that there is that possibility of things being not quite what they seem.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would definitely agree with everything you just said when it comes to a card that is frequently traded, you are let you, we, the hobby are less prone to be victim to any manipulation because you can see several sales of that card over the past yep. 90 days on, on completed listings and, 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 various of the platform. So that makes sense to me. And you know, I, I always, I always say, you know, Lane, that if we, if we, if we rely, if we always rely so heavily on comps such that the latest sales, what the card is worth, I mean, prices would never change. It wouldn't be that exciting of a, of a hobby, at least not for the flippers, investors, dealers, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but what, you know, I guess, and I refer to those as sort of commodity cards, ones that are readily available and always trading. And, you know, you can easily spot trends and uh, I think the data is much more reliable and and important. Um, when it comes to those because again you can always find you can go on ebay or pwcc or wherever and find multiple copies of of these cards available at all times so i think those ones are less likely to be be manipulated unless somebody is literally going out there with you know a lot of money and trying to buy every Connor mcdavid young gun or every luca prism which i think eventually they're gonna they're gonna get exhausted uh from doing that And, and really what is there such a reason anymore? And if if that, and I think now the hobby may have realized that that might've happened over the last couple of years. So it might be harder to get away with it moving forward with all that said. And as you've alluded to, when it comes to rarer cards that don't trade as much, how important are the comps in your mind, as far as being indicative indicative of the fair market value, if you were to keep everything else equal, like the state of the economy and the player maybe being retired, so they can't go have a great game, and and the prices yep. fluctuate that way. So retired players, you know, kind of take the economy out of it, which I know isn't realistic because we're always in, we're always within the realm of the economy. But for sake of discussion, when it comes to rare cards under those circumstances, how important is the most recent comp, or how important do you feel it should be to people who are looking at acquiring that card?
1: Yeah, it's um, it's very interesting when you start to think about those those sorts of cards that don't come up very often, and it really does come down to what you know, who, who the person is that's buying it. So if you're say like me, I'm you know I, most of the purchases I do are for my collection, and sometimes for our um, Australian business as well. So. When I'm doing that, I've got to keep in mind which, which one I'm doing. If I'm buying it for our business, then I've got to keep in mind that we've got to be able to either grade it and make some profit from it or I've got to be able to sell it, resell it raw at a profit margin. So I have to take that into account when I'm looking at comps. But if I'm doing it for a collector, and I've done it many times for some of my Devon Booker cards, is I didn't even look at comps. I just decided what I was happy to pay. Um, And I've probably paid overs many times on some of these cards. And other times I've gone, okay, I will actually look at comps. And, you know, for example, I bought a flawless um, Devin Booker Rookie Patch Auto. Um, And this was when they were in the finals. So probably the worst time to buy one of these cards. Um, But I knew what recent sales were, but I still paid more for it because I knew that that was something I wanted in my collection. It was in the middle of the finals. I knew what that meant to the price of cards and that the last sale of one was a couple of months beforehand. So I just had to decide for myself what I thought was appropriate to pay for that card. So for me, it really comes down to a couple of factors. What is your you know, your aim at the time when you're looking at these sales? Are you looking from a business perspective or a collector perspective or kind of both what some people do at the same time? Um, and also think about, you know, are you happy to pay more for a card because you actually want that in your collection, or you, you think that person has a potential for future value if you're looking at it from an investment or business perspective. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a personal choice um, for these sorts of things. And that's where you do still have to be careful of if, you, if there is a card that you're looking at that looks like it might've been manipulated. There's, I, I would be very, very rarely will you see that there is a card selling of someone Right now that you can't find some other baseline of some sort to compare it to. Um, even a retired player who doesn't have a lot of cards, like you said, their price shouldn't fluctuate a huge amount if they're retired, they're already in the Hall of Fame, they've already received their accolades, there's nothing happening in their personal life to change things or they've not suddenly you know, been in the news or... or you know, even worst case scenario that they passed away that would change their pricing. So in that case, there's usually always something or even something from a year, two years ago that might be relevant at that time about what their pricing might be for that player. So, yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on on that approach, but it is always a tricky one and it's always something each individual person needs
0: to sort of consider for themselves. Yeah, you know, and even we, we, we titled this, you know, does the hobby rely too heavily on comps? And I think they're, I think they're important in some situations and less important in others, like the one we were just talking about where I find them very useful is yep. when I'm, when I am uh, going to a card show that I is two weeks away and I need to, I want to have prices. I believe that at a card show, you should have prices on your cards and I think you should have them on the front. If you want to, I've done it both ways. I can tell you okay. the, the if you have prices on, if you have prices, you're going to, you're gonna do better at the card show. And if you have your prices on the front of your cards, you're gonna do even better. That's a different yep. story, though. But when I'm getting ready for a card show, I go through completed listings. I use 130 point oftentimes to see kind of what what have the what are these cards sold for? And I use that to price my cards because I want to sell these cards. These are not personal collection, personal collection cards, they are cards that I want to sell. And I want and I and I know also that you know, I don't know what percent call it more than 50% of the people coming through those doors are going to check completed listings on eBay or 130 point or somewhere else to see what the card sold for. And if my price is in line with that, so if I want a chance of selling it, I need to, I need to know what those recent comps are. So, you know, I, I think that's real. I think that's when when we rely on them, or at least I rely on them to sell cards. But that's a lot different than relying on them to buy cards. I'm more like you when I'm buying a card. You know, I don't. I'm not buying a lot of commodity cards anymore. But when I'm buying a rare card, yeah, I'm I'm going to bid what I what I'm comfortable bidding for that card. I'm also going to check the data that's available to me to see kind of where as a as a starting point, but I also feel, and this is not a popular take, and it's not one that I'm married to or anything, but oftentimes if I'm bidding on a card and I bid at the last second, that's my, I I, I bid at the, in the, in the, the very I snipe in the last manual, I'm a manual sniper in the last like two seconds I hit submit bid, you know? Yep. And if there was a shill bid in ahead of me that I am either going to overtake or well, I'm gonna overtake. If I don't win, I don't win. But yeah. I know that whatever price I'm putting in, whatever bid I'm putting in with two seconds left is what I'm comfortable paying. Yeah. And if there is a shill bid in there that is driving up my cost, like yeah, I don't, I don't love it, but I don't really care that much either because I wanted the card, I won the right to purchase that card, and if I got shilled up by, by whatever, yeah. hey, I bid what I was comfortable bidding. And it's not it's yeah. not the most popular take as people will say, well, yeah, but you would have saved money, and you know, people shouldn't do that. I agree. I would have saved money, and I agree. Shilling is is dishonest. We you shouldn't do it. People, you know, we don't want to encourage it at all. But sometimes you want a card so bad, you pay what it takes. What are your yeah. thoughts on 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 that attitude?
1: Yeah, look, I I agree with you that for certain cards, I personally you know set my price and we'll we'll buy it based on that. Um, I think when we're talking about this I think we need to delineate a bit between some platforms I know that the shield bidding is more prominent on something like eBay just because of the accessibility for people in most cases to create a new account with very little like very little information required to achieve that they usually have to provide some backing to it but not a lot whereas with some of the other platforms you have to provide a lot more information and payment you know pro- proof of you know ability to pay your your bills and so forth, which makes some of the other platforms a little bit more robust when it comes to you know not receiving shill bids on certain cards. So when you really look at something like that example you gave on, say, like eBay, if I was buying a card there and that happened to me, yeah, I agree, I wouldn't like it. But at the end of the day, I'm setting my price that I would pay for it. I would much prefer to get it without that extra bump from whatever the shill bid would be. But if at the end of the day, I get the... Get the card, and you know, I get it. That's something I want. Then, then I'll I'll take it. Um, but yeah, I would obviously would rather have kept that money in my own pocket if I could have. So it's a it's not a great situation with those sorts of things. And I th- thankfully that I'm aware of, I haven't been hit with any of that when I've been buying cards, when I've been able to look at the bidders that I've been bidding against. But I know there's a lot of people out there who might be, you know, trying to finish a set and they need like one card for the set, and the card only comes up occasionally. Um, that's where I think it's really. You know, I, I feel quite sorry for the people who are trying to win these cards that may only be once in a year or more that come up and they, they really want that card and they have a set price and they would have wanted it at that set price, but somebody too busy shill bidding, that means they don't win and then the card gets relisted and then they get put off or once again get caught by someone trying to shill bid it next time. There, the, That's the one that I really really dislike is when that sort of thing happens for people that are really chasing a specific card that they need for say a set or something in their collection.
0: So all this talk about shill bidding, let's talk about why do people shill bid in the first time it, it seems mm. pretty obvious, but I think it's worth discussing a little bit. And I, and I, I do have a a reason for this. So, you know, in my opinion, i I can think of two reasons why people shill bid lane. The first one is because it is their card that is listed on on, on, a, on a consignment site or buy a consignment seller on a consignment site and they want to get more money for it. So they're going to yeah. kind of chip away at the current high bidders, mm-hmm. highest proxy bid. And, but, but as soon as they overtake it, they risk having yeah. to pay fees and buy their own card and relist it and all that. So it, there, there are some, some incentives not to shill bid, but people, I think they're, I think they're willing to take that risk because it is so prevalent. They're doing so yep. much of it. Another reason people shill bit is price, pr- price protection. I own a yep. card, or I'm not going to use myself. You own a card and you see a similar card with the same card listed on eBay or on mm-hmm. PWCC or wherever, and you don't want yep. it to sell for less than what you feel your card is worth. So you're going to bid it up, hoping not to buy it, just hoping to run the price up. And yeah. I think people shill bid for both of those reasons. Now, yep. are there any other reasons why people shill bid? Look, I, it pretty much covers the, the
1: aspects. I think you've you've yeah you've touched on there. Like for me, one of the main ones I still think is that people think here's the price I want for my card. I will shill bid it at least to that level. And if it if I end up winning at that level, I'll just relist it and go again until I finally get someone that goes over the level I want. I think that's what a lot of people are using it for which kind of baffles me a little bit because you can just set a minimum a minimum bid price on items, which a lot of people do. If you look at a lot of the um, – um, some of the data that you'll see on our website is it'll say single bid auction or best offer as being the, the reason for that sale, and then you actually look at it and quite often it's actually not just a best offer. It's a one bid win, and the, the winner quite often has good feedback because they set their initial bid at $1,000 because that's the minimum price they wanted. That was essentially their reserve. Um, and that's where I think some people might not quite, you know, get the idea that they could literally set at four thousand dollars if that's the minimum they wanted for that card, and see if the market's happy with that. And if they're not, put it up as a fixed price with best offer. Um, and if then you can take offers. And it doesn't stop people still manipulating it by putting in an offer and then never paying when they get accepted, which you know, happens to us in our, our domestic business here a lot, and to anybody who does, you know, large amounts of sales on eBay, um, that happens. But there's some other options I think that people could think about using rather than shill bidding. That's that's my thought on that anyway.
0: Yeah. So that's, and you kind of, you kind of alluded to what I was going to get at there was that shill bidding is, is effectively putting a reserve onto these cards. And so what that means is that the seller, and let's, let's consider it's a seller or the owner of the card who's shill bidding it. What it means is the owner is not willing to take any less than what they're shilling it up to, so that yeah. becomes a reserve price. It's just not a formal reserve. It that's not going to say that there is a reserve on this auction. Yep. Uh, so, but that's really what it is, and it also, I believe, sets the value of that card to that person. Obviously, yeah. whenever it's our card, we are going. I think it's just human nature to to love your cards more than other people's until they're yours. Oh, yeah. you know, value your, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to value my cards more than yours. Cause they're my cards. You know, I've got more invested in them. I got emotion time effort, yeah. all that. But really if you're someone who is shill bidding a card you own on a public marketplace, you are really telling the market that this is the amount that I think the card is worth. I'm not willing to let it go cheaper. Yes. The <laughs> right way to do it is to set a buy it now or best offer or have the minimum bid being you know your value that you want out of it or a little bit less maybe yeah. but in essence that's what shill bidding is doing is it's it's telling the market what somebody out there the owner usually yep. or the owner of a similar or same card feels that that card is worth now yeah. again i'm only we're only having this this discussion to get into the psychology of things obviously mm not at all endorsing shill no. I mean, we no. never, never do that, of course. It, it, yep. It's not a good thing. But these are some of the ramifications and reasons why I think people do yeah. it. So yeah, your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, look, this is a, it's a real, like talking about it is important because it's a real issue that people are, a lot of people are concerned about. And like you can see in some of the comments that are coming up in the YouTube here and on the other, you know, through the feed that, People really do dislike it, and it and it causes some consternation for people across the hobby that they really dislike this, uh, you know, dishonest behaviour. And, and I don't disagree with them whatsoever. And it, whether it's you know the person who's selling the card pushing the price up, or someone else who has the same card who wants to be able to sell theirs for a higher price, pushing it up. Um, either way, it's still dishonest behaviour. And um, you know, we would we I personally really think that some of the work being done by some of the other platforms is fantastic to try and actually discern real versus not real sales. Um, we offer all data as it is currently to actually allow people to make the decision for themselves um, where they can, you know, that's why I, I'm a big sort of fan of people looking at multiple sales where possible. If there's not looking at similar cards and seeing what the sales are and, and just trying to understand and educate themselves to the extent where they don't just necessarily trust the output of a single, um, you know, piece of information provided to them and take it as gospel. They can actually go away and look at it more critically and say, "Oh, well, hang on, it says that it's worth that much, but is that really what this marketplace is telling me, and, and what these sales are telling me, and and these other cards are selling for this? You know, how does it all piece together as a puzzle?" Um, so, you know, we would like to. One of the functions that I do want to actually add into the website, which we are hopefully going to be able to do, at least for eBay sales, because they're the ones we can look at some of the data in a bit more detail, is allowing people to sort of um, verify an auction or a sale by us using a bit of an algorithm in the background that goes and looks at some of the data on eBay's end and not showing it, it's not data we're allowed to give to everyone and say, here's all the information, but we can see if it was a high or low feedback buyer, what was the bidding history looking like leading up to the sale of an auction? We can see what, you know, you can see that on the eBay website too. If you know, On our website, if you click the bids number on an auction for eBay, it takes you to the eBay page and shows you the bid history for that item. So that allows you to do a bit of work yourself and go, well, hang on. Uh, the, fee- the feedback of this buyer was one. And there was a one and a zero feedback buyer bidding against each other for the last $2,000. I think this might not be a real sale. And then sometimes you can even click on the link for the eBay listing and go to eBay and it shows that it's been removed. And that's another component we want to try and incorporate. And we've been talking about it, this with eBay as well is can we find a way to, when that if that item isn't sold, we can actually remove it from the data feed and show and actually take it away? Because at the moment, it's very difficult to do that. The information still quite often shows up depending on how it was cancelled or if it was sold or not. The sale still shows in the data feed even though the item didn't sell. And I get emails daily from people saying, can you please remove this um, item? It wasn't paid for. Here's the screenshots from my account. And I would say I would love to. But the problem is we get our data directly from eBay and eBay is still showing it as a sold item. And we don't have the ability to intercept like the thousands and the hundreds of thousands of queries that go on every day to actually just pull out those discrete items if they appear in a search. So we're trying to move forward into a place where we can potentially start removing sales from the system that are incorrect, where the data that's been provided by users, um, and I think someone in the comments asked about a consensus board for difficult comps and things like that, where if yeah if there is enough information provided to us from a user, we can basically say this is an unpaid item, um, or this item just gets removed completely. We'll have to decide how we do that. I would probably prefer to leave the data there, but flag it as unpaid, because then it just shows people that this item, you know, what happens if it gets listed again, it gives people clarity to see that it's been listed before and it was unpaid or it didn't sell or it looked like it might have been shielded or whatever it might be. And then they can go back and say, Okay, hang on, there's something going on here. So um, yeah, our intent is always to provide people with the data to make the decision themselves.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, you're simply relaying the data. I, I would I would expect that you know eBay will eventually get there I think they just probably need to put some resources into that code or whatever it takes. It would be nice to know on an item that doesn't get paid for because that bid shouldn't count. That's basically a bid retraction. It would yeah. be nice to know what the card would have sold for if the winning bidder didn't bid yeah. because not that, that to me is a reliable important yes. yeah. relevant, maybe not a hundred percent relevant, but pretty still relevant data point in terms of assessing value of, of a card. So yeah, I think, I think that's uh, I think that's interesting. Um, okay. I I just put up the the comment here. We're going to go through some comments now. So Skeppy did say, you know, what if one 30 point offered a consensus board for difficult cards to price that are rarely seen. You could request a trusted price based on the data the board could provide for a small fee of course. So almost like, uh, like, like crowdsourcing the value of yeah. the card, right? Yep.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's not a bad idea at all. And it's um, definitely something that we could you know, consider looking at. And I say, you see it in a lot of Facebook groups here, there, and everywhere and, and other platforms. People put up cards and saying, what's this worth? And um, that's the only thing is, is it, how do you sort of limit it to cards that do legitimately need some expert opinions to, to make a determination on rather than, um, you know, a card that could have easily been searched by someone and there was many sales for it. So it'd be a matter of finding a way to sort of limit what cards can be submitted under that sort of request. Otherwise, I think you'd find a lot of people who just wanted to get the price without having to do the research themselves would, um, would potentially abuse a system like that.
0: All right, good. Let's uh let's now run up. We're gonna run through some of the comments from the bottom. Jen Mint joins and says, What's up, guys? Thanks for your contributions to the hobby. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Jen Mint. Jake's toe said, Save a few bucks, but you paid what you were comfortable with. Yeah, you might, you know, you might save a few bucks if you didn't get chilled, but you paid what you were comfortable with. And you know, that's that's how I justify when I yeah. <laughs> may or may not have been chilled. It's like, listen, I got the card, I wanted the card, I paid a price I'm comfortable with. Prefer I don't get shilled, but you know what? Yep. That's just the environment we are in, unfortunately. Uh tis, this the break says, What's your site called? It's 130 point.com, 130 P-O-I-N-T.com. Uh, Jake's toe here says, shield bidding has been around since the beginning of time. Just bid what you're willing to pay at the end and just enjoy if you win the item. Yeah, you may have been able to save a few bucks. But you paid what you were comfortable with. Okay, I'm going. I'm going backwards through the comments. <laughs> yeah, that makes to me that makes a lot of sense. Again, prefer doesn't happen. But when it does happen, at least you're not. Hopefully, you're not putting in a an astro bid or a mega bid, and then you are being bid up way <laughs> high, way way higher than you actually wanted. Yep. But then it's on you for making that bid anyway. You're making yeah. you're making yourself liable as soon as you enter that bid right yep. all, it, all it takes is
1: two people willing, I think that two legitimate buyers willing to want to buy a card to send the price of something quite high, and I've seen it on several cards that I've sold where there's been a bit of bidding war, and, and I've had some success with auction houses like you know Golden and other ones where I've sold cards that that has worked in my favor, where two legitimate buyers were bidding against each other and they you know eventually paid.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, uh, this the break said shilling to me is scamish. Well, yes, I think we'd all agree with that. Just put the card up, buy it now, or best offer. Yeah, the reason lot, why people, right? yeah, but the reason why people don't do that is because you want it. You want to instigate a bidding war, and you know, and then if you're going to throw yourself in there as a, you know, to yep. shill it up even more amongst two legitimate bidders, well, that's at that point I think that's fraudulent, and you shouldn't yeah. do it. But I think that's why they do it, and they don't do it the way that. I would do it and you would do it and this, the breaks would do it. Austin Olson says, if someone is going to risk shill bidding and having to buy their own item, their own card and paying all the fees that come with the sale, why not just post a listing best offer? It's way easier. Yeah. For, I think for those reasons and they, can't you like not pay the fees by canceling the purchase? Like doesn't, wouldn't that, wouldn't that say?
1: Let's end up canceling the purchase. And that's one of the the things that we want to try and, incorporate into 130 point if we can get the data to match correctly is that if it gets cancelled we can actually then show that it was never paid for but it's a tricky thing to try and find all that in the, the ebay data feeds and get it right
0: a few comments from earlier i'm going to run through mod cult said 130 point also works for comics i use it for cards and comics thank you lane awesome service collector's dream awesome website thank you mod cult great to have you as always uh jake's toe said i even i use it for other sold items not even related to sports or memorabilia so it works for everything then not just sports cards uh gross bros just says hey i'm not even smart enough to comment on welcome to to the to the show now uh Jamie Tucker said, "Entire card market is full of fluff and scammers on eBay trying to pump sales for their failing retail stores." I mean, let's see the evidence of that, Jackie Tucker. I don't agree with that comment. I, I'm not saying that there is not fluff and scammers on eBay, but um, it's like it's like it's just such a bad, it's such a, a, a negative comment with a negative spin to say the entire card market. Well, if the entire card market is is these is an online uh, online platform sales platform or auction platform then maybe but it isn't there are there are local card shops there are card shows there is person to person probably as many of those well I I guess you know between eBay PWCC and the others there are a lot of deals going down but um, I just don't like the tone of this comment it uh, and I see is that a crypto logo there, Jackie Tucker's using, which might explain uh, might explain that take. Uh, good evening to you, Austin Olson. Uh, Andrew marks here says uh, Lane, he says, pay what it takes for the for the first card, then average down on the second and third copy. So I, I don't I don't know Andrew because that and just the fact that there would be a second and third copy, that implies that it's a common card or a readily available card. So you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to purchase a card like that on a auction platform that has been shilled. Because you can wait or hopefully find one that isn't shilled. Uh, what do you what do you make of that, Lane? I think yeah, in terms
1: of that that message in particular, I think what they're probably referring to is if there's the first ever listing of a card, let's say a new product, new release, the first ever. You know, so for example, you really wanted to buy a gold Zion silver uh, gold Zion prism when it came out. And there was one listed on eBay. There's no, there was no market for that at the time, no price for that at the time. So if someone wanted that, you have to pay what it takes to get it. You're really willing to, you know, set your set your mark and and pay it. Then if over time we've seen a few more come out and then you start to see, okay, there's you know, the first one might have been up here, the next one might have been here, the next one here. And then he comes back from injury and it goes back up here. Like it gives you that, I guess, those, those markers to look at. But yeah, I think that's always tricky, particularly if you're the first person with some card or item or even a one of one. Um, sometimes it's tricky. If, if you want to decide you want that card, you've got to be willing to work out what you want to pay for it.
0: I mean, and that does make sense. I didn't consider that partic- that, that sort of meaning behind the statement. But yeah, if it is a card, the product just comes out. It's a, you know, again, a prism gold, let's say, out of 10. And the first copy comes out, you know, I feel like psychology of collectors who really want that card is like, I may never see another one again, even though you know, you probably will. But you want to make sure you lock one down. And as as we know, the first copy of a card is always going to be the one that usually history has shown us will sell for the most. And then they tend to come down a bit and then then actual market forces take take over from there. But, yeah, maybe you do need to uh, just pay what it takes to get that first one and then dollar cost average down yeah. on copies two, three and four. If you are going to look to hoard or go to, you know, try to have every copy of that card. So I understand that. Yeah. I'm going to go uh, going to go to a comment that came in way earlier from dr i've been saving this one he -hmm. says how does the first comp lead to the second the third and the fourth why wouldn't cops comp sorry why wouldn't comps keep things at the same price moving forward at the early prices and this is actually i really like this question because i'm gonna ask you now lane just for your thoughts on it you know we often there's so much reliance on comps in in the in the hobby Mm -hmm. uh, transactionally how is it that prices do move? If we exactly. rely so much on comps, why do prices actually move off the last comp? What are your thoughts? Yeah,
1: yeah definitely. It's um, you've got to look at it more broadly, though. It's not just that we're not talking about this tiny little ecosystem of just pieces of cardboard that people are buying. the The price of cards varies based on the actual you know we see the actual performance of the athlete on that card. So, you know, we see it. I you know, can use Zion again as an example because it's I guess really current, and I'm a um, predominantly basketball and soccer, even for, you know, looking at the World Cup, someone like Messi's card prices were at a certain price three months ago in the lead-up to the World Cup, so they might have been building up a bit because there was that lead-up to it. And then throughout the World Cup, they've fluctuated based on his performance, and now that he's won, these prices have jumped up again. So the, the pricing that you'll see will often be you know, like a stock market almost, and if you want to refer to it like that, is based on the performance of the individual how those cards might change, and we do often see sometimes where individuals play well and their card prices don't move because there's just not that interest or that demand is from collectors. So it comes back to that, um, I guess that topic, I guess, that's quite prevalent in a lot of um social media at the moment with um pricing and things. It's about the scarcity, it's about the rarity, it's about supply, it's about demand. Certain players have that it factor that people want their cards, and therefore there's a real demand for them the supply might be low Um, but yet again there's other players who might be playing really well but just don't have that same demand for them that means that their prices don't change so wildly and that even with some excellent you know 20 30 40 point game performances in a row where they previously scored 10 points they might not see the same fluctuations in in um, their actual pricing so yeah it's easy to look at that it's purely on paper and say well why does it? Why would it change? It's the exact same thing, but you're not buying a car; um, you're buying, you know, a, a sports card related to a, a, an individual who's actually, you know, doing something every day, pretty much in most cases, um, and therefore their performance or injuries will change the pricing. And
0: yeah, I mean, the, yeah, and then you look at it. So, so that makes a lot of sense when it comes to active players' performance. Yep. You know, game to game, week to week, will 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 can and does change. Mm many of these players card values but take a retired play, And again keeping the economy out of the discussion because yep. that's going to influence prices too but if you were to eliminate the economy which you can't but if you could i think some other there are some other factors or forces at play here things like new collectors coming in and i can speak to this directly i when i started collecting 90s michael jordan cards i think i started collecting them in like 2017 or something like that All of a sudden, I'm this new entrant, and I am bidding on cards that I don't know a ton about. I just know that they're, you know, I know I like them. I know I want to own them, but I don't know exactly how the hardcore basketball Michael Jordan collectors feel about them. So I do a little bit of research, and then I go in, and I make a bid. And I I inevitably pay more than has ever been paid for for that card. It happened with my Platinum Portraits. It happened with my Jambalaya. I I broke records on both of those cards at the time. Worked out well for me, but even today, yeah. but I broke those records. Now somebody might've thought that, you know, that was market manipulation. No, I paid for those cards. I still yeah. have them today because I was a new entrant and there are yeah. always new people coming to the hobby and there are always new people coming, you know, kind of, kind of pivoting or zigging or zagging into a new area of sports car, a new adding a new PC. I'm going to start collecting a new sport. I'm going to start collecting a new set. A new era, whatever it is, that's also going to cause prices to change. And for me, when I've purchased a card at a record price, I tend to know what the, what, what the, you know, if it's available, I'll know what the most recent comp was. But sometimes on a rare card that doesn't come up often, I don't care what the comps are. Yeah. If that's what the owner, was willing to sell it for back in the day when they sold their card, either at they were willing to just like let it just roll the dice on, on an auction or that's what they asked for it on, on, a, on a buy it now sort of thing. But just because the one seller that day and uh, however many bidders decided what the cards were worth to them doesn't mean that that I or someone else is going to come in and say, I think it's worth more. I'm willing to pay more. I mean, that does happen, and these are some reasons, some additional reasons why comps do move over time. I yep. think, That's, yeah, that makes sense to you. Yeah, certainly. It's a uh, we saw it. That was one of the reasons why we saw
1: that huge spike in in prices during let's call it the COVID era of basketball cards and trading cards in general, and even just all sorts of collectibles across the board. They all saw this increase because the the number of new entrants coming into the market was far far in excess of the number of people leaving that marketplace or hobby or whatever it might have been at the time because they had less you know a lot of people had a lot more time at home and or wherever that whatever they were doing they were stuck couldn't go do the things they wanted to do so when you've got more people coming in and less going out all those people are trying to be interested in the available cards which didn't in themselves expand particularly that much more than the normal releases and that's why we saw the price of products go so high because you had a huge number of people wanting the products same amount of products being produced and in some cases less therefore prices go through the roof because the demand is just not even close to supply so even with some of these players who may be retired hall of famers the whole component there their prices spiked because a lot of people came in and decided oh well i'm you know, i'm from a you know, 80s era i want to collect some 80s guys and they went and started buying up those. And that's why some of the vintage stuff you know, increased as well because people realise that they're really solid investments. And like you said, they don't typically, you know, peak and trough like a lot of the modern stuff does. They have more chance of just a gradual appreciation like you would like to see in a sort of an investment that might be a long-term investment. Um, so, yeah, it's a interesting now that we're in that point where we've kind of decompressed a bit from those huge number of people that came in. But I, I still think we're at a point where we still have more people collecting than there was pre-COVID some people might be trying to exit and get rid of their inventory and maybe taking huge losses and therefore that could be leading to an increase in shill bidding compared to what it might have been two years ago um, just because we have a lot of people that are done with it and want, want to get out but I think ultimately we still are in a much you know we, we've kind of leveled but I believe from all the data I see and, and a lot of the stuff that's published out there that we're still in a position that is much higher than we were so fingers crossed we don't see it drop you know through the floor and we just continue on a nice upwards trend for most people in terms of whether it be volume of sales and and the ability of products to come out we maintain that through the new fanatics deals and they start continuing this you know good support to the hobby which I think they will because they've got a lot of money invested in it. But also I hope that, you know, with that comes some better things for collectors and and some you know, aspects that I know a lot of people would love to see improve like customer service from a lot of the companies and being able to get responses on things when they want them in a timely manner.
0: Yeah. I think, I think what we're, yeah, I think we're, we're looking for, we're hoping is for some stability, maybe to find, find the floor finally, mm-hmm. after 12 months of, of a bit of a vol- some volatility hitting in heading in, in the wrong direction uh but it, it's not the wrong direction it's the right direction because it's the reality so it, it really is what it is i agree with you i think we have more collectors now than we did before and you know all those points you were making about you know the movement of pricing with all with new people coming in uh i i don't think i think a lot of people were just buying whatever they could they didn't a lot of new people didn't know what to buy and for yeah. those new people who have stuck with the hobby and are still with us i think they're now a little bit more focused and they have some experience they know they know that you know you can buy something and and take an 80 percent hit in six months if you aren't buying the right thing and it's hard to know what the right at the time if it's the right or the wrong thing but now at least they they have some experience and hopefully they'll try to hopefully they'll stick around become collectors and uh and just be more focused and more more um savvy i guess about what it is that they're purchasing. Okay, let's go to some yep. more comments here. Uh, welcome, Julian, baseball card curmudgeon. What's going on? We have uh, Jay Skolnick. I believe he's from Australia. I got to meet Jay yep. at the national. Yep. Is he's he's in Australia, isn't he?
1: Yes, yeah, he is. Yeah.
0: I got to meet Jay at the at the national. I got to tell you, one of the most fun people I I did meet. So, Jay, if you're still with us, uh, great to see you. Thank you for joining. Uh, Tis the Break says, like two like two parties agree on the ref's decision. Of price of said card, I'm not sure what. what I'm not sure if I follow that, but uh, might be in reference to something we said earlier. But thanks for the comment. This the breaks. Austin Olson says, "I'm still new to one thirty point and watch count, but what's the difference between the two? Can you? Spe- yeah, I forgot about watch count. I used to use it. I don't anymore. What's uh, what's the difference?
1: Yeah, I, I haven't used it myself for a while, but um, I think we we tailor more towards providing clearer data presentation for trading cards watch count from memories is covers a lot more different marketplaces and has a, I think a bent towards antiques and things like that um which may be a little bit different to what we provide for but yeah personally i haven't actually used it for a while so that's um
0: yeah that's the best of my ability my knowledge from years back all good brendan ryan says if you have ever readjusted your comfort level in price at the last second and bid and one, you might be a shiller. I think he's saying that tongue in cheek, but like, who hasn't done that? I mean, I do eh. it all the time. I'll put in, like Lane, I will put in my my, my snipe bid with two seconds left. You know, if I'm on eBay, I'll eh. on the app, on my phone, I'll hit submit bid. I'm instantly outbid by someone's proxy. And then, you know, it gives you those preloaded predetermined three options of numbers. I'll just hit the one on the farthest right and hope to get, because I'm like, darn it. I thought I was going to win. I'm willing. Yeah. Now I'm willing to pay more because I didn't get it at that price. I'm not shilling. I'm trying to beat the shiller is what I'm trying to do. Or I'm trying to beat another honest bidder, which hopefully is what's happening. But um, yeah, I think we've all readjusted our, the price we're willing to pay at some point or another. Correct. How about you? Yeah,
1: certainly. Like I, um, I tend to do, if i'm buying a a reasonable size card these days I, I prefer to do it on some of the other platforms like maybe um pwcc or, or golden and that just because i like their extended bidding windows because you can sort of get a feeling if you've got someone who's bidding against you and how keen they are to actually beat you or whether you know it's it can happen on any platform that somebody's going to be dishonest and try and push the price up but at least with that one i, I usually get a feeling for how many other people i'm up against particularly in those extended bidding windows so i do like that format and um you know, it's probably not something that you would you'd want to see implemented on something like eBay because it's just gonna you know, can cause even more problems that you know, you end up with a auction just getting shill bid constantly for hours and hours and hours. So um it's a, just a different approach. But yeah, I I don't know, it's a it's one that I've done it before on a couple of cards and, and yeah, just done it. No, I want that card, I really do. I'll change my mind, I want to pay more.
0: Exactly. Skeppy says Does one thirty point have any plans to capture data from card shows? for pricing key cards that help set an overall barometer of the market like a 52 mantle or an 86 jordan
1: yeah look it is interesting we would like to get to a point where we can take in i guess user submitted sales um that would be ideal for providing that full-scale clarity for people um but you know something like a 52 mantle i don't think someone's coming to 130 point to get a comp for it i would Probably not think they would they'd probably do other things to work out how much they're willing to pay for a card like that but um you know we see plenty of the data available for 86 jordans in general across all the different marketplaces um where people can see what they've sold for so adding in some of those private sales would be great to just give that extra context but i already believe that for some of those you know highly transactional cards there's already a lot of data that adding one data point to it may not necessarily change the value or skew it too much unless that is a really big outlier that somebody has decided that i'm going to pay a huge amount for um yeah if it's a if it's a high transacted card then those data points may not change it too much but i'm not definitely not against having something like that added in particularly if there are cards like a gold prism or something like that that sells privately that we can get enough information to verify it that people would like to know what it's sold for
0: yeah and i mean it's hard to verify a a a submitted Mm. sale i mean it's easy it's easy, you know, it's easy for me to write a check and show yeah. it on Instagram. Yep. You know, it's easier for me. It's easier for me to write a check, show it on Instagram, show it. to, yep. And then someone, you know, the recipient show it deposited into their account. Yep. But six, 30 days later, three days later, I could easily just transfer the money back. And I mean,
1: yeah.
0: I think even though, even though the public marketplaces aren't, uh, infallible you know they're not perfect there there is bad data in there um the 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 it's just tough I think the only way you could really do it is you know sort of the way card ladder does it which is to like you have to do it from trusted people not it can't just be open yeah. to anybody that yep. you have to know the person who's submitting it and mm. it really have a feel for you know their level of integrity even that is still not without its holes, and I completely yeah. understand that. Uh, Ryan McCormick says, devil's advocate view, shilling gets the buyer to what he or she is willing to pay instead of $1 above what the second highest bidder is willing to pay, not endorsing, but it is the economics of shilling. And I am I understand what Ryan McCormick is saying, and I mean, yes, it's funny how Ryan, myself, we have to continually say, I'm not endorsing it, mm. but-, but you these are some of the impacts, effects, and psychologies of it. Is there anything you'd like to, to add to this, Lane? No, look, he's,
1: yeah, he's pointing out exactly that, that sort of approach we were talking about where it is, you, when you think about the mentality of the people who are doing this, that is sort of what they're most likely trying to achieve. So, you know, it's it's really just yeah, going into the mind of the person who's, who's likely to do that on the other end and understanding why they're trying to do it. It um, doesn't make it right, but we can actually you can understand why they're trying, but at the same time, you know, maybe they could have just been willing to accept a little bit less and they would have actually got a sale from it. So, it's uh, yeah, I usually work on the basis. If I send something for auction, I've got to be willing to let it ride and see what it sells for.
0: CS here says, um, the ability to snipe bid at the last second, and we've been talking about that because I do it, you do, it, I, think mo- I think a lot of people do. The ability to snipe bid at the last second on eBay lowers yeah. the potential final price and is not great for sellers. Well, maybe, maybe not. It just depends how many other people are looking to snipe, right? If there's four yep. people, and this happens to me all the time, yep. five, yeah. four or five people, anyway, two plus people are putting yeah. in a snipe with five or less seconds. Yep. The highest snipe is going to win.
1: still going to win, yeah. It doesn't matter. When you put it in, if you put it in an hour before it ends, two days before it ends, or one second before it ends, as long as you're, you submit that value, it gets through, and at the end of the day, whoever's got the highest one will win. It won't. It might be that if, yeah, maybe that was put in an hour before that somebody else might have made a choice to go, I'll go a little bit higher. But it's you can't really produce a system that can cater for that. Like even the alternate system of extended bidding still requires people to decide how much they want to pay and what's their maximum they're willing to pay. It doesn't stop them from, they don't suddenly go, no, I'm going to pay $10,000 more because I'm in extended bidding. They're still going to say, no, my max is $4,000 or my max is $40 or whatever the number might be. They still have to make that call at some point. What is my maximum amount I'm willing to pay? And both systems cater for that.
0: And, and for the extended bidding platforms, it, it requires the bidders to stay up late enough to, yeah. to see what happens and to get yep. a bid in if they need. I mean, I, yep. I cover the PWCC Premier Auction one Thursday night a month. And, yep. you know, we're always kind of wondering when is this thing, when is it going to end? You know, not like we're, we're, we want it to because it's, it's fun to, to do. But, you know, you just... You just never know who's gonna wait until the last until they think they've outlasted everybody else. Whereas with eBay, you know that auction is ending at that second. There's no extension, so you have to be on the ball. You can use an automatic uh, an automatic sniping service, or you can just manually snipe like I and many others do, and put in your best bid at the time. And if your best bid isn't good enough, you might have the you might have another opportunity to put in one more bid. Uh, before the clock runs out, yep. which often is the case for me, as a sniper, as a sniper, <laughs> uh, Mitch, welcome. Says evening, gentlemen. Has one thirty point looked into purchasing historical sales data from eBay-like websites such as WorthPoint?
1: Yeah, so it is. Yeah, uh, you know, it's a valid point. We. As I said, though, before, we aren't allowed to display in more than 90 days just because of our direct agreement with eBay. So uh, even if we have the data, um, showing it is still against our policy and our agreement with them. So yeah, whilst we could have it, we can't show it. That's just the the long and the short of it.
0: Uh, Nick Martelli snipped the BGS9 Connor McDavid rookie patch. Great feeling. Congrats, Nick. I'm sure it's a beautiful card. And Jake's toe said, and this is a good comment, Nobody ever complains when they set their highest amount to pay and get it for a lot less than expected. And nope. I, right? I mean, and so I, this happens to me all the time, Lane. And the biggest example I have on this, well, th- th- I'm going to tell a quick story. There was a card I had to have. It's a set I'm working on uh, that the cards were all numbered to the player's jersey number. And there's like three oh, yeah. one of one. There's three one of ones in the set. This is from 2013 national treasures, hockey, three, yep. three goaltenders that, that wear number or wore number one. Anyway, the one card was up on eBay and one of those 101s, and it was at like $250. And I'm like, I have to have this card. This goes back several years now. I don't know, six, seven, eight years. I put in a bid of $1,111.11, 1111.11, <laughs> thinking I'd win the card for three or $400, but I wanted to make sure. Lane, I put in my bid and I was automatically outbid. Oh, no. So, uh, here's the thing. The guy who won that card, who won, who had to buy that card, would hate me. Like, I don't know. <laughs> they don't know who I am, but they must have hated me that I came in with a mega bid in the last second to try and win the card. And they ended up having to pay 1126 or $1,136 for that card. Yep. Funny enough, Lane, I bought that card several years later on eBay at auction for like $220. So uh-huh. um, lucky for me. You're there eventually yes. But I'm just so lucky that the guy that had my my proxy bid outbid, I'm so lucky that that, that person's bid wasn't under $1,111. Otherwise, I would have... Now, I would have been happy because I needed that card, but I'm much happier to get it for $250 or $220 of or whatever course. it was. Versus eleven, yep. eleven. So yeah, to Jake's toes comment, I wasn't complaining. Now another sort of that—that's a—that's an extreme scenario lane. But it's also happened to me where I'm willing to pay five thousand for a card, and the current bid is at twenty five hundred. And I put in five thousand, I get it for thirty two hundred. Let's say in that scenario, I actually feel like I saved myself some money. I feel like I'm ahead of the game. Yeah, it might the just be psychology, psychology but. Because I feel the card is worth more than what I had to pay for it. And I I think that's a legitimate position to take. Because just because on that day, nobody else felt that way, doesn't mean that down the road, other people might not feel that way. I think there will. My thought is that other people would feel that way and come up to where I feel the card is worth it and just might be a little bit behind or not aware of it or that sort of thing. So anyway, fun comment for me to reminisce there. Any any, uh, responses to all that, Lane?
1: Uh, look, yeah, no, I agree with you. It's, it's one of those things I've had plenty of times where I've thought about cards I wanted to buy and, and it went too high for what I was willing to offer at the time and, and then a few years later they come up again and I was happier with the price and I was, you know, thankful for it. But I've gone the other way as well, where I bought cards. i paid, you know, more than i not more than I was willing to pay, I paid quite a bit for them at the time, but it just it didn't pan out how I wanted and I've had to then you know, if I've changed tack in my collecting and I've sold them, then I'm you know sitting there thinking oh wow what did i do here this is a bit silly but i i i work on the basis that across all of the purchases and sales i make for my collection in particular that i, I even out i win some i lose some and that's just part of the the process is being able to look back on it and go oh that i remember that time i got that one and i you know i did well with it i got it for a good price and it's still in my collection and then another time i you know sold this thing and it was before i knew it was uh you know, way more expensive and i've had plenty of them so yeah i think it's just part of the experience if you're if you're collecting that's what happens
0: and if you're entering into a high enough volume of these transactions you like you said and you said it yep. very well you're gonna win some you're gonna lose some if you're consistent in in your behavior as a bot as an active buyer hopefully at the end things kind of balance out yeah uh, Tim's San Francisco Giants Mem says flippers can never beat a collector out of an auction. That's for sure, because a flipper needs built-in margin, and if a collector wants it, they don't care about margin. They're willing to pay negative margin to get that (laughs) card. Uh, Justin Vick says, all this exploration into the minds of shill bidders makes me want to catch some Law & Order episodes tonight to reset. (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of feeling the same way. This is one of those topics that it's a little bit icky to get into but it's also an important topic and uh it's something that is just the reality of of our hobby uh ryan mccormick says sorry to arrive late has there been discussion of 130 point versus ebay's internal TerraPeak sales history search engine which is quite powerful and now free what differentiates 130 point um i actually i didn't think we hadn't got into that is there something there you get to speak to lane
1: yeah, I did talk about it a little bit briefly, but it's more along the lines of, um, yeah, you know, Terapeak does offer quite a good bit of information as well. Its, um, its accessibility is a bit more tricky than um, what, what we like to provide a direct access to, to a page you can quickly search and get the results. Terapeak, you have to kind of fiddle around with the settings a bit more. And like I discussed before, it's more um, tailored towards um, products that sell routinely like a toaster or a TV or a, you know, iPad or something that sells on eBay that has a barcode has a you know a serial number that can be tracked easily and then you can see the trends of those products selling so you can do your own pricing for your own items whereas with sports cards it's it's fine like you said maybe for those high transaction transact transacted commodities of cards that might have multiple versions of it then you can possibly find a bunch of Psa 10 silver prisms of whoever you want but if it's a unique card that doesn't sell that often then their search engine is actually a little bit not catered towards providing the results you would want to see in the format that's easy to read. So, um, yeah, look, it's still a powerful tool and there's no doubt about it. Um, People, I know people do use it as well and um, it's another option, but ultimately I think we provide something that's just a little bit more um, versatile and and allows you to have multiple search tabs and, and, you know, you can save your results on the one page to look at, you know, within the same... You no know, search, rather than having to continually research everything, just things like that
0: that we offer that I think are a little bit different to Terapeak um, that yeah. differentiates. Yeah, when I when I when I use One Thirty Point to price out cards before yep. a card show, yep. and then I I see all this all my previous searches yep. are still there. I'm like, holy! I like like sometimes laying yep. serious. I'll have a block of them like this oh, yeah. big or bigger, you know. And I'm sure some people have way more than than even that. Um for everybody who's here, we got a lot of people watching. Again, welcome. We're, 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 run, we're running into the end of the show here. But if you're not yet following 130 Point on Instagram, you can see it in, on the ticker right now. It's at 130, that is two underscores, 130 underscore, underscore, P-O-I-N-T. And the website is 130point.com. Right, Lane?
1: Yes, that's spot on.
0: Good, good. Okay, Uh, I like this comment here from Jake Stowe says, I can't shill my own cards because I never sell them. That is (laughs) the best defense. That is the best. It's like, yeah, that's the best reason. But you know what? The one thing about that is, though, some people, the whole price protection approach still is something you could do. Yeah, you can't shill your own cards, but you could still shill the car, similar, same or similar cards out there to protect that bottom price. But if you win it, you should pay for it. If you don't, you're a scumbag at that point yeah Yeah. Um, okay I want let's just switch it up but this is I think we've covered off a lot of the whole you know are we too reliant on comps and what 130 point does before we wrap up Lane let's just sort of get your thoughts on first of all your own experience how has your experience been starting up a company in the space having to having to adjust to the market moving to competition and all this how how is your experience going as a business owner in the sports card space?
1: yeah, it's um it's been very um, interesting, fun, uh, challenging, definitely challenging many times, um, coming up against different challenges you have to meet. and I think it's just a it's like anything, you've got to be determined. you've got to have that passion for it and determination, otherwise it's very easy to become disillusioned when, Over the years, we've seen things change and and, and morph with how data is provided by eBay and and how things come and go with some of that information and and access. So for me, it's um, I've you know I was lucky. I started it as a as a you know a passion project um, for something I loved, and I've been able to turn it into a business. And I still love what I do. So I, I you know I feel very lucky in regards to that that I can every day have something that I love, that I can work on. And I know a lot of people out there don't have that opportunity. Um, that They don't necessarily have the ability to, to be working on something they love. So I'm you know, i always humbled when I'm able to talk to people about it and I, I hear the positive feedback they give on it. And I, I just like to know that it's helping collectors with their collections or people who run their businesses and their livelihoods that they rely on the tool. And that was one of the great things about the National was actually just meeting people that, you know, Obviously, I, you know, I'm not on Instagram or social media or anything a huge amounts with my face showing everybody who I am. So they got to meet me in person, and, and it was just great to have those honest, frank discussions with people who, you know, really appreciated what this business has turned into and, and what it does for other people. So um, that's the one thing I do really find about the, the card collecting community in general as a whole in person. People are just amazing and, and so generous with their time and willing to just talk about the thing they love as well. Um, being cards and the collecting and and whether that be someone who's in it for an investment purpose or a collector they all have a passion for it whether it be yes they want to make money out of it but they still have to understand the sports they still have to understand the cards they still have to understand how to grade a card to get a good grade if they want to increase the value of their investment so they still have to have that underlying knowledge that we can all share and, and sort of be a part of as a community so for me it's been absolutely fantastic in that regard it's helped me connect with a bunch of people that I wouldn't have otherwise connected with um, got opportunities that yeah I, I couldn't have dreamed of so um, for me, I've done really well out of it. I'm lucky that this business has grown to where it has, and, and hopefully we can continue to grow it into the future and you know, keep those opportunities going.
0: Perfect. Jay Skolnick says, uh, do what you love and love what you do. Good on your lane. Keep up the good work. I, I, I mean, we should all be echoing uh, those sentiments. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Jay's in Australia. You're you're in Australia. You know, yep. when, when, you're, when you go to a card show, and I know there's card shows, in australia and it's not like australia is one one city australia is a big country uh with with, with several major cities um how what's the what is the hobby environment like there right now are there are there shows every every weekend in in all the big cities uh and, and when you go to them do people like is australia proud that 130 point is australian made yeah, look, I think they are. I
1: get lots of good feedback from people, and they a lot of I've had many people say to me, you know, I can't believe that you know I didn't know that you you made one thirty point. I love that tool; it's, that's fantastic. Um, which is, you know, it's it's great just to hear positive feedback. Of course, you know, get negative feedback too, and I accept that because it's part of running something like this. You've got to be willing to take the good with the bad. That there's you know, nothing's perfect, and things can always be improved. But yeah, we've got a good strong community down here, and like every. You know, collecting community and, and everything around the world—it's it, grown a lot in the past, really five years I think for us. Um, we, we saw a lot of growth even leading up to before sort of the boom around COVID. Um, it's died back down a little bit, but it's still very, very strong compared to where it was when I first started. We had, you know, one or two Facebook groups with a few hundred people in it, and a, you know, a web web forum, a website forum, which had a few um, where a lot of the hobby lived for a long time before Facebook came along. Um, And they're the people that kept it going in Australia for a long time. And, and, you know, it's fantastic that some of those people are still around and quite well involved in the community. Some of them have moved on. But, yeah, we have a very strong, passionate group of collectors here who um, collect everything and anything. Um, We have a very good um, company here who makes um, Australian rules football cards that range from uh, kids' sort of level cards that kids can access all the way up to high-end products like a flawless type product that they release um, and we have card shows now quite routinely um, not every weekend but we're seeing more and more pop up so um, next year I know even in the first three months of the year we've got at least two decent-sized card shows here in Melbourne um, other ones happening in Sydney Brisbane, Adelaide, um, Tasmania so there's you know, we're getting a lot more in terms of the people wanting to get out meet with each other trade buy sell in person as opposed to just online and through through groups and eBay and Facebook.
0: What's the what's the name of the company that makes uh, the cards in Australia?
1: Yes, yeah, so it's Select Australia. So they've been around now for a long time. They've been making AFL cards and some other cards for a long time. They've been a yeah a huge component of the community here in Australia when it comes to AFL cards, which is a, a big community in itself for for you know a sport that's only played here in Australia for the most part. The um yeah, there's a lot of avid AFL collectors here in the country who are very much into set collecting and, and all that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, that'd be similar to here in Canada. We have the Canadian Football League, the CFL. And uh, there are CFL cards going back to the 50s, I believe. And there are some very avid collectors. It's very niche. Uh, There are people who collect CFL cards pretty hardcore. And Upper Deck even started making some CFL cards. I'm not sure uh, if they're continuing or not. But uh, Nick Martelli says it's great that with all the data and info that somebody is doing something that will help and grow the hobby needed especially after the past few years so i have two more questions for you the first one lane is 2022 january 2022 to december 2022 what did you learn about the hobby in 2022 about the dynamics of the hobby did you, mm-hmm. did you learn anything about the dynamics of the hobby in 2022 that you didn't know leading in and if so what would that have been
1: yeah i was um i've been lucky enough to learn a huge amount more about the dynamics of the international components of the hobby and particularly my first foray into a lot of the um, businesses in america so i haven't i had not had much exposure other than discussing some data with people but i've actually now since then been able to you know actually be involved in discussions with those companies around their data and and how they all work and and sort of where they all fit inside of the whole scheme of things and the whole collecting space so for me Prior to that, I'd really been only ever involved in companies here in Australia or some card shops or whatever it might be. There hasn't been that much. I I was using all the data from eBay. But over the past 12 months, I've really been able to engage and connect with all these different marketplaces beyond eBay and all the people that work with them. Um, And for the most part, every single one of them have been very forthcoming and, and helpful and just wanting to sort of a lot of people might have negative things to say about certain companies because they've had bad experiences or so forth. But my experience with these people that I'm dealing with mostly on the data side and and some of the business development aspects is that they just want to get their product out there for people to use, see, you know, whatever it might be. That might be, they want them on their platform to buy and sell cards. They want them, to use their product to, you know, list their own cards, whatever it might be. There's a whole range of things they can do. Um, They've all been very accommodating and and, and helpful. So yeah, it's been really good actually meeting these people, getting to know them and, and, you know, it's changed sort of the way we do business here and and added a lot of features that I think people um, appreciate.
0: Great. Really good stuff. Jeff Eklund does want to know, are Australian rules football cards standard size two and a half by three and a half inches? They are?
1: Yeah, they sure are. Yeah.
0: Chief Rocker Wakita says, great show guy. Thank you for uh, for tuning in, Chief Rocker. Really appreciate that. And my last question for you, Lane, is 2023 is only uh, 12 or so days away. What? Any predictions, any thoughts on the market moving forward? Uh, how do you see 2023 unfolding? Anything you'd yeah, like sure. to comment on? Um,
1: I think we'll see uh... – I like to think we'll see uh, hopefully and like you said we can't predict economies and things like that that we see more of a, a steady flow of of pricing and products and and collectors and and we're just sort of in a more stable environment over the next year which will be fantastic I think for everyone um, and I think that there's some good things that could come about with some of these transitions of platform um, companies through to fanatics and we're going to start seeing some of those things roll out so I'll be very interested to see how that pans out and and how those sort of things impact um distribution and hobby shops and all the relevant and breakers and and how we it all sort of flows out from that into all these different areas and i can't predict that because i don't have enough of an insight unfortunately into how those businesses are going to run their distribution and supply and, and as much as i would love to know i unfortunately don't but um Yeah, and from my perspective, I just want to see, um, like for 130 point, I want to see us grow and sort of give more and more back to the collectors to allow them to do more of what they want to do. And that's buy, sell cards, collect, see what's happening in the world when it comes to sales and products and pricing and and just give them that information that they can then decide what they want to do with. It's purely up to them how they want to collect and how they want to utilise the information provided to them. So it's always been our goal is just provide people the information and let them make the decision for themselves how they want to use it and how it will impact their collecting lives.
0: All right. Well, good stuff, Lane. Well, Hey man, listen, uh, this has been really a a fun, a fun episode, a great conversation. I think we tackled some good topics here. So thank you for uh, coming on the show. I want to thank the chat for your questions, comments. We had some really good input from the chat as, as we always do here on sports cards live. So uh, yeah, Lane, I'm going to give you the final word and then we will be ending this episode. So over to you.
1: No, I just want to say a great um, big thank you to you for having me on. it's been fantastic. this is uh, I guess my first official um, you know segment on a US um, live video so it's been fantastic. I've done a few local ones here in Australia um, and I really appreciate you you know working with me to get everything set up and make sure this went as smooth as it did and the questions have all been great and yeah the chat has been great too um, some very good questions coming in from people so appreciate that and yeah, yeah thanks well, very you much.
0: Bet. And you say this is your first? I can guarantee you it won't be your last. I'm sure that you'll be on you'll be on the radar of some of my fellow content creators now that you've been on here. So I wish you the best on those. I'll tune in for sure. And thank um, yeah, thanks again, Lane. Skeppy says uh, great. You'll appreciate the answers, Jeff Ecklin. Thank you so much for for being here. If you guys are not yet subscribed to this YouTube channel, please go ahead and do so. I would appreciate that. And just if you're if you are still here listening, watching. This is the last show on Sports Cards Live of 2022. I will be on vacation starting Thursday and uh, will not be doing an episode on Saturday the 31st. I have some other obligations that night. We'll be back in January of 2023. This has been an awesome year overall, personally, for Sports Cards Live, uh, for the hobby. Uh, So yeah, I just want to, I want to thank everybody who does tune in loyally or or not even intermittently to the channel and to all the new viewers this year thank you everybody so much there are even though i'm i'm now a member of the tag grading uh team and tag grading itself there are no plans to slow down with what i am doing content wise i just enjoy it all too much so you can expect much more of this in 2023 so final comments from the chat i see them coming on Brendan Ryan, thank you. Hey, that's a, that's a nice comment right there, Lane. Every minute. Yeah, that's that says a lot. That's a good episode. Thank you, Brendan. Appreciate that, Jake. Appreciate it. Merry Christmas to you and everybody out there. Happy holidays to everybody. Justin, we'll see you next year. Thank you, Nick Martelli. Thank you, Perk. Great year of shows. I appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. I would love to come back to Australia. I haven't been there since 1991. April 91, I left. I would love to come back. That's and, on. Uh, my my old stomping grounds where i lived i worked at, i was a bus boy at the hard rock cafe in sydney on on william street right yeah. Up, right yeah oh my gosh all right thank you skeppy appreciate that thank you mod cult appreciate that yeah if anyone's in arizona i'm gonna try and check out some of the lcs's there while i'm down there uh from the 22nd to the 29th so That's it for this episode. That's it for this year on Sports Cards Live. Lane, thanks again. Hang tight one moment. Everybody else, have a great rest of the holiday, rest of the year. We will see you next year. This episode is over. The year is over on Sports Cards Live. (laughs)